Hey everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and welcome to Season 3 of Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Since this is the first episode of a new season, I thought I would explain what brought me here. Many of you will know this story, but for those of you who are new, some background. When my husband Chris was 37 years old, he noticed some weakness in two fingers on his right hand. A couple of months after that, he noticed some muscle wasting on the outside of his right palm. And by then, we knew what was coming for us. Not even a year earlier, Chris's dad had died of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, the terminal neurodegenerative disease that kills the motor neurons that enable muscle movement, leaving those afflicted eventually unable to move, talk, eat, and breathe on their own. Doctors told Chris he had 6 to 12 months to live. That was more than three years ago. Since then, Chris's voice has changed and he's lost the use of his right hand, along with his ability to smile, make facial expressions, and swallow most foods. But thanks to a promising clinical trial, he is still here. The medicine hasn't stopped Chris's ALS, but it has given us the gift of time. Time to make more memories, to love each other more completely, to learn things about ourselves, and to see the world in a different way. We have learned, and are still learning, hard, painful lessons about how to live in this place where sadness and joy, pain and beauty, devastation and hope all coexist. What I've learned about life is that grief is, of course, universal. And while sharing the constant push and pull of my grief feels right to me, I know it's not for everybody. Still, I think that even if you don't want to share your story out loud with the world, you want to hear other people's stories. You want to feel that sense of community. You want to know that you aren't out there in this alone. And that's really what this podcast is, a space where we can talk about our grief honestly, where we can share with the world these raw parts of ourselves and see what happens when we do that. Because in my experience, what happens when I do that is I feel stronger. I feel like I can keep going. And that's how I hope you feel after listening. Today, Chris and I talk about loneliness, about how as we have settled into this life with his disease as the narrative that guides this story of ours, we are beginning to realize what it actually looks like. And we have both found ourselves wondering, are people tired of this story? Are they still paying attention? Do they know we are still just trying to keep our heads above water? Would they rather we not talk about it? Everyone knows the feeling of being in a room full of people and still feeling completely alone. That's what living with Chris's illness can feel like. His speech challenges, his physical differences, can make him feel like he's on an island. The things I have to juggle every day can make me feel like no one else gets it. But as the great Brene Brown would say, these are just the stories we are telling ourselves. And if doing this podcast has taught me anything, it's that the one way to feel supported and loved and less alone is to talk. So here we are, still talking, still here. This isn't the life we imagined, the one we wished for, but it's the one we have. It's cracked and broken and patched together, and there are pieces missing. And as each day turns into each week and each week into a month and each month into a year, that we are still here holding it all together and only becomes more precious, more beautiful, more miraculous. This is, again, more of our story. A quick 
reminder that Sorry I'm Sad is truly a labor of love for me, from finding guests and researching topics, to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this work and you want to support it, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member. For as little as $5 a month, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. We're back. We're back. Season three. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're still going. I'm still going. That is sort of the theme of our life. <laughs> <laughs> We're still going. We're still going, yep. We're still here. <laughs> uh, well, it's October, and I had wanted to start this in September. And in retrospect, I think starting anything in September is horrible because everything else is starting in September. <laughs> it felt... Very busy and, I'd say, stressful for all of us. Yes, and we had a very, very, very busy summer. And so when we got back in the middle of August, it was it took some time to sort of settle back in because we were pretty much gone from June toward, like, third week of June on. And it was wonderful, but it was a lot. <laughs> it was. It's hard for your hosts for that long. Yeah. Yeah, we got back and the kids, oh, we want to see our friends, we want to have play dates. And I was like, no people. No. No people. <laughs> no one comes in, no one goes out. No one goes <laughs> We're on lockdown. One of Cohen's friends' dads texted and said, uh, we're just wondering when Cohen is going to be done with his jet lag. <laughs> Give us seven to ten days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we have settled in and the kids are back in school and they're both playing hockey and our son tried out for uh, quadrant hockey, which is a sort of, I don't know, how would you describe it, Chris? Well, it's the next step after community. Yeah. So it's his first year he could try out, which meant it was first year where he could be cut from a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made it, and he's very thrilled. But it was stressful. It was a stressful experience for him. And for you. And for me, <laughs> yes. Yeah, man, it's hard to, like, just want your kids to succeed and do their best, and then you're worried they're going to be, you know, do their best, and it's not going to be enough. Um, but he made it, and he's enjoying it so far. And Will is playing hockey, and they both back in school. They like their teachers, and everything feels like maybe... It's funny how the calendar turns, and it does feel like, okay, maybe now you can take a deep breath. Yeah. And your season, you're back in hockey season two. That's right. Season, I think, 15. Yeah, that's crazy. And it was the craziest off season that you have ever had working in hockey. I think over July 21st, when we flew to Boston, and our return on August 16th, they had talked to our GM, Brad, more in that time than in the 11 months prior. <laughs> yeah. It was challenging, too, because we're ready for a break and we're ready for a holiday in the summertime. But also, like, that's your, that stuff, all that stuff that happens in the off season is your wheelhouse and you are most energized. And I remember before we were going to go 
away to New Hampshire, to, to the lake, you were kind of disappointed because you felt so involved. Um, I'm, I'm sure that was a conflicting thing for you. In our position, there's a perception that the job is like fantasy hockey. That's all trades, signings, and transactions. And in reality, the transactions are probably on the NHL side, three to seven per season, mm -hmm. the entire year. And in the case of our trip, that was coinciding with what ended up as the most significant trade in probably 30 plus years of this franchise. And all the scenarios were on the board, and we were grinding at that daily. And it was like, okay, let's go on a plane and go on vacation. <laughs> that did not sit well. No. So I worked on the plane and landed, worked the next day, and that was the daily trade, Matthew Kachuk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and here we are, ready to start a new season with a totally different totally different team. It sure feels that way. It's not, no. but it feels that way. It does. It feels that way because of how, how different. It feels like a different, I'd say a different era, like a different yes. chapter. Yeah, end of, end of an era for sure, for, for it to lose some of those guys. But um, the last time we did this, we did a Q&A sort of. And, and, I, and I think we talked a little bit there about sort of some of the challenges that we've been dealing with since around last year at this time, I guess, uh, November is when we really started to deal with a lot of issues with your digestion. Um, and it's, those things are still things that we are dealing with and we'll sort of get into, to, into your health. But as we've sort of restarted hockey season, both community hockey, now quadrant hockey and flames hockey, I've really been reminded of where it feels like home is. And I was thinking about that in relation to that, you know, hockey family that we talk about a lot and how um, seeing those familiar faces in the rank of people that we've been playing with for years and families that we've met and, and, you know, people who've been in the Flames organization for years and how sort of calming and settling and kind of feels like a big hug to me to kind of come back into the hockey season. Um, and I thought that, the biggest, best example of that feeling for me this year was at the NHL Awards. And I wanted to talk about that experience because it was pretty much unlike any other. So you you got a message from the league. When, like, tell me how that happened. I think the league reached out to the team, to our team, in, let's say, May and asked if I'd be willing to uh, give out one of the four or five major awards that they do in person. And I was like, there? Like, in person, on TV, live? Like, yeah. I said, I'm terrible at speaking parts. <laughs> so you said... Of, of course. Yeah, of course they could. But under the condition yeah. that we could all do it. Yeah. And I said, we're a package deal. We do things like this as a family because it's really important. And far to the, I guess, secretary reason, I'd like to share these few parts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think you find a, a large 
amount of comfort, right? In the, yeah. the three of us being yes. next to you. A ton. Yeah. A ton. Yes. So we bought fancy clothes. You already had fancy clothes, but Willa picked out a little dress, little shoes. Cohen got his first suit. Mm-hmm. Um, his first suit wasn't elastic waist. Yeah, yeah, which he needs now because he has to be the business casual for his hockey game. <laughs> so he's getting good life out of that out of that suit. He looks part of that. It will stays. It's a sharp little suit. Um, so we went down to Tampa, and this was right before school was going to get out, and um, it was kind of a it was quick. It was sort of a whirlwind, but we did a little run through. It was really neat. You know, we did a run through of the of the whole event. We had to practice our lines. The kids had to, you know, this is where you stand and this is what you do. Willow was going to hold the little, the puck that opened up and said, and we were giving out the Norris trophy. And so, um, Kale McCarr, who is from Calgary and actually grew up playing community hockey in the same ranks, in the same rank that Cohen and Willa have grown up playing community hockey. in. um, he was up for the Norris trophy. So Cohen was really hoping that he could, he could give it to Kale McCarr, but we weren't sure. We didn't know until the end, and we were worried that Willow would open it too soon <laughs> or something. Um, but we got there, and and I remember thinking this was going to feel emotional. But I wasn't sure what it would be like. And there were a ton of amazing people who gave out um, who gave out awards. It was really a neat sort of theme that they went with. People in the hockey community who have gone through trials or who have done something good. The woman who... Um, at the Kraken game pointed out to, was it a Canucks mm-hmm. um, equipment guy that he, she thought he had something on his body that looked Cancerous. like cancer and it was, and she like held up her phone. So, and then Jake Tebow, who as a high school player um, in Massachusetts last year um, was paralyzed in a game. Um, and he, what an amazing kid. Mm-hmm. Um, he did one. Um, I'm going to forget others. Mm-hmm. And, and and then and then we were going to do one, and so ours was toward the end. I think mm-hmm. it felt like stressful waiting. I was pretty worried I was going to fall because I've worn high heels in a, <laughs> in a really long time. But we walked out from the side, and pretty much immediately, the whole place stood up. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk about how what that was like for you to experience. It's like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Um, to look around that room and see such support, such recognition mm-hmm. from people who generally are those receiving mm-hmm. the standing ovations was, was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I felt. Mm-hmm. And it went on mm-hmm. and on and on. And I think I watched it later, and it was around 40 seconds. And yet, at the time, it feels like it won't end. It's like it's just going and going. Mm-hmm. To the point that it touched um, my heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to lock eyes with some people, uh, I locked eyes with Austin Matthews, who is the MVP of the league. And he kind of gave this, I guess, smile slash wink, and he had emotion in his eyes, not his face. And to realize that people do know our story to that extent and care that deeply was, uh, it was a really awesome feeling. Yeah, it really, uh, I felt like I, I floated on that for a long time. Like the, 
the amount of understanding in the support that's given to us is, um, is pretty powerful, I think. And, and I know that, that you often feel in a room, like you can be invisible because your challenges are that you can't jump in in conversation that you, um, that people can't always understand you or often can't understand you. And I think about that. And I remember not long ago texting you and saying, I think you have to remember that even if people aren't saying it, the way that the people in that room reacted to you is how everybody feels when you walk into any room that you are still there, that you still show up every day, that you still do your work the way you've always done your work. You know, for me personally, I know that you're the sort of, you know, most resilient, toughest person to walk in any room. And I think that's a struggle for you to remember because it it can be hard to see outside of the things that are inhibiting you from being who you used to be. And people undoubtedly care and feel awful mm-hmm. for my situation. But most people don't want to say anything mm-hmm. because they don't want to make you feel bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to say the wrong thing. And so they say next to nothing. Yeah. And I think that they are trying absolutely to do the right thing. They're looking to do whatever is the best thing for you. But at times, I think they just don't know what that is. And I think in saying nothing often, um, I don't know what people are thinking. Yeah. And so it's challenging, you know, in an isolating kind of way. Because I do walk into rooms often with people the absolute prime, and their life. Mm-hmm. The athletes or, or for athletes. Um, men, almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, loud, conversational, choking, high tempo. Those are the themes that I'm surrounded by professionally. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have to take a different approach than I used to in that I can talk slower, pick my spots, I can't answer a quick joke that I once did, and so I don't withdraw, but I participate only to the extent that I can. And so I definitely feel on the periphery and alone a lot, even when in those situations with lots of people. Yeah, and that was sort of the, the main thing I wanted to talk about today, was the idea of of loneliness because <clears throat> not this most recent summer, but the summer before we had a pretty amazing experience as well. When we went to Boston and on your 40th birthday throughout the first pitch at Fenway and felt like, you know, this was this other area of your life that, you know, home where you grew up, where these people were embracing you. And it was powerful, very in a very similar way to, to the NHL awards. Um, and then we had a great trip and we had a lot of friends come and you felt very loved. And I felt like when we got home from there, you, you're, you took a pretty big 
dive in your happiness level. Mm-hmm. And I think fall and winter are always hard for you. Um, but I thought for the better part of the last year, I worried about depression for you. Not in the sense that like diagnosable, you're not getting up, you're not going to work, that kind of a thing. But just that that sadness that is sort of settled into you, that it doesn't really kind of have an end. And, and, I, and you know, for me, I watched, I think uh, you lose a little bit of your um, positivity, uh, your, not your resilience, but your, the way that you would bounce back from these little spurts of this. And, um, and I've been pretty worried about that for, you know, now a year, I guess. And you started a new therapist last week and you came home and you said, my therapist does not think I'm depressed at all. She just thinks I'm really lonely. And, I had just maybe texted you the day before that and said, I feel really lonely. I feel lonely even when I'm with you. I feel lonely with my friends. And so we were both, we've both been feeling this alone. And I wonder if you have thought more about that notion of loneliness since you've talked to her and, and, and kind of what your feelings are about that right now. I wonder if there's something different, different is isolating. And in the case of the different that I am, uh, there are very few people I see in the course of a day or a week or a month, and it's close to zero, who can't eat, uh, who struggle to talk, and to have the constant presence of a progressive disease. And to connect with someone who does, or to have that validated by someone who doesn't, that's what draws me in. And I don't need validation in the sense of uh, recognition. I need validation in the sense of, I see you. And I care about you and how are you. And I do think that it's unsure to accept that routinely because there's two types of people with illness. One, they want to talk and share their open. And I think more often people don't want to talk about it. They prefer to just let their existence like it was and the illness is something to deal with at home. But this illness has been the case for three and a half years. Yeah. And will continue to be the case for as long as I live. And I, I think that to not feel alone is to talk about this with people who are healthy and accept more often with those who have some relatable situation in their life. Mm-hmm. Just I realize that I'm not alone in this. Mm-hmm. And I think that means talking to a friend here who has a feeding tube and a speech issue more often. He is essentially me, just for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, had, I hadn't thought of this as how to frame and interpret this mm-hmm. and to realize that this is how I feel. I feel lonely. It is something I, can, I could use. Yeah. 
And I was thinking about that too, having, having that framing, right. And just how much of a difference that makes, because I would say that in the last, I don't know, week since you had that appointment, I've noticed a little difference in you. And I wonder about that. Just the, just the idea of being able to point to something and say, Oh, that's how I feel. And if that even helps alleviate a little bit of what you're, what's happening for you. So you found me for a long time to go to therapy, so I want you to feel validated. Oh, oh, I see, I see. It's me. <laughs> um, I think I, I tried to do things recently that I put off. Mm-hmm. So see a physio mm-hmm. for physical issues. See a massage therapist. See a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that to attack a problem is to start to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, doing something, right? Is There's so much power in just knowing you're taking an action, even if it's not solving it or whatever. But I, for me, I had mentioned to you that I was feeling lonely, lonely with my friends, lonely with you. Um, but I didn't realize there was another element for me until actually was sitting outside Willis hockey practice at, on a bench and one of my best friends is on her son is on the hockey team and she came out and sat by me and she kind of said, how are you? And I said, you know what? I'm lonely, but I don't want to be around people. <laughs> That's a conundrum. Yeah, it is. And, and, and then you can get stuck in that process of like, I'd find myself standing a bit, I'd, I'd go to school pickup, but I, and I didn't want to join the group of moms that I usually stand with. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Stand to the side. And, and so then I think once I realized that I thought, okay, well now I have to push myself out of this. Like I have to force myself to walk into that group and I have to re-engage. Right. Cause otherwise I think you can find yourself stuck in that spiral and then you just keep disengaging. And I think that, that that is something that I've watched you do uh, because I think you're convinced you kind of convince yourself that every social situation is going to be a failure for you. I don't think so. I think that a lot of them are. And when I have good social interactions, they're in controllable environments. Yeah. They, they're in a place where I can tilt my head back to talk. They're in a place where the background noise isn't such that people can't hear me. And it's not always easy to control that environment. Right. I think what I'm saying is that I feel like we know those things, but we don't do the things to make sure we're we're not making the plans to give us that. Like, oh, let's sure. just have one other family over and you can sit in the house. You know, things we're not really and, – and it's part of it is just that it's been – it's hard. It's busy. Everybody's busy and everybody's going in different directions. But we've talked – I think we talked before a couple of times on this podcast about, like, what is fun for us? Look, What does fun look like now? And And I think – there's an element of having to work at fun. And I think that at the end of the day, work in and of itself for you is so much work. Just getting through the day is so much work because of all your extra challenges, just in simple things that it's just tiring. Yeah. The day is not challenging in a tiring way physically. Mm-hmm. It's challenging in communication. That's all. And so at the end of the day, it's like, oh, I want to sit for 
three, four, five hours, mm-hmm. even with friends, and how to attempt to successfully talk and to think when it's scheduled, that's a good thing because that'll do it. Mm-hmm. Then one's coming. And if I don't schedule it, to your point, we likely won't socialize. Yeah. And I wanted to go back to the thing that you were talking about with people not bringing anything up to you, because I think that we're in this period of this, like this is a long-term mm-hmm. illness. We are in the grind, mm-hmm. which is awesome because we didn't think we'd be here. And I think we sort of floated, and I, I think you probably said this before too, but I think we sort of floated for a long time on the miracle of you being alive. You're still here. You're still doing so well. You're still so independent. And like anything, that sort of euphoria, it cannot last forever. And and now we are settling into what the reality of our life looks like now. And I think there's a little bit of an element of feeling like what you're going through can be forgotten by other people. I think there's two parts to that. And a big part of that is maybe something that we created ourselves at the very beginning of this, because you didn't want people to like, look at you with that pity look and, and you wanted to to don't still, no, you don't No, That's what I'm saying. So we made an effort to say, treat Chris the way you always have treat us the same, just treat us like you. But in doing that, people think you don't, wanted it acknowledged at all. I think we're all guilty in life, and this goes for healthy or ill, with having superficial relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is, that, like, treat me like you always have, yes, but I find that like being around people who there's depth and honesty and I guess a bit of them wearing their own emotions on their sleeves. That those who will talk openly themselves, I feel like I want to talk to you openly. Yeah. And so I think that I'm at a stage where the superficial is it's challenging to talk to, you know, and superficial talk is not very interesting. And so those who want to talk in depth about their lives, about anything, uh, that's where I tend to gravitate to. Yes. Yeah. I have written something. I'm looking forward to my text string. To the doctor in Miami, who I, I talk to a lot. And I had just, uh, this is how I had said it. I think the shiny feeling of, holy shit, I'm still alive and this is a miracle, has sort of faded. And he settled into this realization of, holy shit, I'm still alive and I have this disease and I'm going to keep losing function and this is my life now. Like, is that part of it for you too? I suppose. I think there's just an annual... But this is the start of... Year four. Mm-hmm. It's really like three and a half years in. But I say the start of year four because the start of school, the start of hockey is kind of time when I'm preference back to three years ago when I thought it was the last or anything. 
And on the one hand, I'm doing terrific. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, things are slightly harder. And there's a weight to that. Um, but more than anything, the summer is so easy. Mm -hmm. The weather's great. You control your surroundings, meaning let's start in the office. And even though I worked a lot, I worked at the lake. And so it's around you and the kids, my sister and her kids. So it's a very easy place. And to go back into ranks, meetings, huge gatherings, um, and to realize all over again, oh, unlimited. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that you don't feel when you're around your family. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like your, your brain goes back on for the year. Mm -hmm. And I think so fast and clearly I only thoughts and ideas and I had to choose my words so efficiently yeah. that there's a reminder of that frustration and it's there all the time. We've talked before about there being sort of two ways to, to live at this point, which is one focusing on everything you still have or two, focusing on everything you've lost. And when I said earlier that I felt like you lost some of your positivity in the last year, I guess that's what I felt like you have struggled with, especially recently looking around a room and seeing what everybody has that you can't do, what everybody's doing that you can't do has seemed to me to be bigger for you than I'm, a, I'm just a pretty overwhelming feeling of late. I think that there are two states of mind that I'm in. One, at any given time. And one of those is looking just at today, being mindful, appreciating like today the weather, the leaves. You know, I took three or four deep breaths on the ride home because the air is awesome. And focusing on today's work and today's victories and failures. But just today. When I do that, I'm good. When I focus on or think about next week, the day after, the week after, the month after, like, and think longer term, that is overwhelming and causes, I think, an emotional spiral. And so I really am tempted to restore that today mindset. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think I do a similar thing in response to how you're feeling is that in my brain, I'm seeing you still, you know, so capable and so independent. And then, you know, you're coming home and, and saying to me how frustrating it is to not be able to communicate the way that you used to be able to communicate, that people can't understand what you're saying, that you really miss eating. That's actually been a big one lately in the last, I'd say, six months, like in a different way than you did at first, you've really missed actually eating. As we distance ourselves from COVID, I just see more instances of yeah. dinners, dinner parties, dinners out that I either go to and don't eat or don't go to. And we've talked a lot about joy, happiness, where to find it. I think it's just been thinking more often that food was the source of that. Yeah. Because it is. Yeah, it is. It's huge. 
It's a, uh, and it's something that in our family we're always aware of, right? Like Cohen and Willa, especially Cohen, are always aware when they're eating something delicious and really enjoying it because there's so much joy in eating something that tastes good to you. And Cohen is always aware that you can't and always says, I wish you could eat this dad. I'm sorry. You can't eat this dad. He always does. Yeah. He's, he's very, very aware of it. And, and usually you tell us, and I don't think you're just telling us and you believe it. You feel it. Like you enjoy watching us enjoy things, but it's hard. And, and I think the long haul portion of this is like, this is not a fixable problem. So the notion that over a period of three months, you went from eating everything you wanted to not being able to eat really anything at all is, that is a huge thing to grieve. And I think that one of the things about that feeling of gratitude that we're still here and the miracle of a feeding tube, which it is a miracle, you know, just as much as Tofersen is a miracle, your feeding tube is a miracle because Mm -hmm. you'd not be alive without it. Such a simple and profound surgery. Yes, exactly. But that also sort of, you sort of ride that feeling for a while, that just gratitude, like, okay, now I have this feeding tube and I'm going to not lose weight and I'm I'm going to be okay in that way. And then you have to, at mm-hmm. some point, hit that point where you're like, fuck, I'm, I'm never going to, I'm never going to eat food again. I thought those exact words recently. Yeah. A few times. I did get a respite of sorts in the summer. Until like I... So here in Calgary, with the altitude and the dryness, I... My swelling is even less effective than it is in a human climate, in which case it is not effective, but a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the lake, where it was really hot, really humid... I had almost entire luster. Now, the tiniest of ways. Mm. And I swallowed in kind of a rato way. I kind of sucked the food to the back of my mouth as opposed to just using the swallowing muscles and cells. Mm-hmm. Same with drinks. But I drank root beer there. And I can't drink soda here. The carbonation just doesn't work here. But it does there. Drank Coke floats, drank... Um, Milkshakes. Milkshakes, yeah. These thick milkshakes that here suspend in my throat and I have to get coughed up. And so that was really enjoyable because you could have dinner with the kids and Colleen, my sister, and her family. I could sit there and drink soda and feel really good about my part of that. Yeah. And so getting home, and so it's like losing that because I'm reduced to, let's say, iced coffee and the occasional vodka soda. And then we got home, and <laughs> you had and to... So I sat down in this chair. You had been doing so well. <laughs> and you said to me, you sat down with a vodka soda, and you said, I feel so good about how I have figured out... I said, I really figured out this swallowing thing. I really figured out this swallowing thing. And then you immediately choked on your vodka soda. And and you have had aspiration pneumonia, and we've talked about it on here, but that's all been reflux-related, so something that was already in your stomach coming up. Um, it's pretty shocking, really, that you haven't had a, 
a choking incident since you got your feeding tube. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, you aspirated, we call it going down the wrong way. Like that's what we'd say. Oh, it went down the wrong way. And, and for you, it's, it, it was bad. Uh, Like you're breathless. You feel like you're not going to catch your breath. You were scared. So I think in hindsight, what happened was I got into Calgary and progressively as it went more and more of that dry climate consequence. Mm-hmm. And there was still kind of mucus saliva that's dried, whatever you want to call it, backed up in my throat. Mm-hmm. And I drank, I felt like stuff was kind of just like cluttered in there. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to clear my throat and whatever I cleared instantly went into a lung. Mm-hmm. Until I went five went to a lung. Mm-hmm. And I never drowned, but I'd relate this to what drowning likely feels like. That you can't, you haven't taken a breath, you anticipate this. So you have zero air, you can't breathe in, and you're not sure how long it's going to take to clear. Mm-hmm. And Freddie thinks it ever will. Yeah. And so I don't know if it was 15 seconds, 20 seconds, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I could not breathe at all. And got out of the chair and went to the kitchen sink and they they taught me that in these instances you shake three quick breaths if you can through your nose and then out through your mouth because that relaxes your airway. Mm-hmm. Or trying to suck air in like a <gasps> it's not good. That causes constriction. And so I was trying to do this through three breaths and at first I couldn't. And then eventually, you know, try a third or fourth try of that I could a little but it took it took hours to restore my breathing. Yeah. And and then you ended up um, needing an antibiotic, having a fever, having a... You know, we didn't actually go in. This would be the first time we didn't go in for a chest x-ray. But the way that your uh, your body was responding suggested that you had a an infection, another pneumonia. Well, that's what it is. And so you went on an antibiotic. And it was... So, so since this sort of started in November of last year that we've been dealing with this... How many pneumonias have you had? Five. November, December, June, August, September. Yeah, so we had one in, in New Hampshire um, mm-hmm. over the summer. And it's, it's for us, I think this, like the, definitely your digestion and your reflux and all of this is the sort of daily struggle. Like the real one that really worries me, I guess. Same. So the issue, which we have touched upon here today, is that my esophagus is so weak that food not only doesn't go down with these, it doesn't stay down with these. And so I can't lie flat at all because it could essentially just flow. Stomach acid, uh, undigested food, etc., and so I sleep with a wedge, which is fine. I don't mind that the least bit. But I'm constantly aware of the delicacy of what's going on with my stomach, mm-hmm. esophagus, throat, and mouth. In fact, when I get in out of the car after eating, I do so in a really delicate way. Not physically. It's 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 a digestion issue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that anything that's a quick motion uh, can't bend over to pick something up. Uh, like if I pick up a pencil, I use my back. <laughs> like I squat to do yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a huge fear of a significant reflex of that. Yes. And, and I have a fear of like too many pneumonias and, you know, what all these, mm-hmm. cause your breathing is so good. And so, you know, there's a lot of, of worry involved in this and what that looks like. But I think the worst thing after that most recent aspiration was that it really sort of killed that confidence and that it, it got you pretty down because it really impacted then after you've had that aspiration, you end up with a bunch of crap in your throat and it felt like this time it never went away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your stomach was starting to feel upset when you ate anytime. And we've, it just felt like all of a sudden nothing was working. Just terrified and terrified. I was sad at the notion that I was potentially done drinking yes. anything. Mm-hmm. There's all this uh, excess saliva in my mouth that was constantly wiping out after that. And like a nice coffee or a drink at night, that's like all that I have. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that being lost was really weighing on me. And associated with that is a loss of just confidence. Yeah. And you were, and whereas before when you'd have those aspirations, you knew that they were about like something that was already down coming up. Now, not only did you feel like it was harder to swallow because you had all this sort of gunk in your throat, you also were scared. You do this math and when I drink a small drink from say Starbucks a small suffering pig and yet I probably take 50 sips 5 to drink that mm-hmm. and so you think okay that takes 50 sips and I drink water in the day and probably 200 sips a day that's 50 dollars a week you're like how could I do this over and over and not make that mistake again and that took a lot of time weeks to regain that confidence. And I do think at this point, I am close to back to where I was. Yeah. It's funny when we talk about like the loneliness, because I think you have your loneliness, I have my loneliness. And even though we're very much in this together and we're working on all of these problems sort of side by side, we're doing it separately. Like my role in this is, is so different, obviously. And I struggle with the feeling that I can't help you. And so, you know, I know what, how much joy it brings you to be able to have a vodka soda, say, especially if like we go out to dinner and it's just the two of us, or it's the four of us and everybody's eating food. At least you can sip a vodka soda and then you feel a bit more engaged. And so that's an important thing. So I immediately go into like research mode and I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to find, you know, I can't solve the problems I want to solve for you. And so if you find a pair of socks that are easier for you to, you know, we found one pair of socks and then we couldn't find them again. And I immediately, okay, I'm going to go online. I'm going to find those socks and order 27 pairs of them because (laughs) I can't solve a lot of your problems. And so when I find one, I can, or I think I can, I work really hard at it. So I found this 
And and I'm and and in in tr- in full transparency, this has been a hard month last month for you and I. Uh, I think we felt very disconnected. And you said to me point blank a couple times that you didn't feel like I had a lot of compassion for you. And I know that that put my back up against the wall because I spend so much so much time and energy trying to solve problems for you. But I've thought about it a lot. And the best example I can, I think I understood what you meant um, at this one point. And, and, and it was when I said, okay, we're going to find this medication for you that you've been taking via tube, which I actually learned has been doing you no good. <laughs> um, and we're going to get, get it liquid so that we can put it in a nebulizer and then the nebulizer vaporizes this medication and it helps break apart, break. It's supposed to help break down this mucus. And so I messaged with your doctor and we found a pharmacy that would order it in and I bought the nebulizer and I got it all set up for you. And you put the mask on the first time to do it and you were coughing and you were pulling it off to spit and you were talking during it. And, and I felt annoyed at you. Because I was like, I worked so hard to find this solution for you and you won't do it right. (laughs) And then I put it on and it sucked. It felt horrible. And I took like two breaths and I was coughing and I thought, okay, this is what you mean. I can't really know how hard all this stuff is for you. And I can try to find the solutions for you, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy for you. And now every time you're doing it and you cough, I'm like, good job. Good job, love. I know it sucks because I did it. And I can't put, I can't walk a mile in your shoes very often. So publicly, you were right. I did. I was lacking compassion for you because I was sort of, I couldn't see past my own, my Mm. own stuff. I totally appreciate that. But you're often at max capacity. And well, that's, that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Like, sounds like I'm frustrated because you're frustrated at the notion of tying my shoes. And I either think or say, seriously, like, you can't do this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot in a day for you to do, to feel, to think. And so I understand. I just, I just wanted to be heard. That's all. Yeah. And I think that's, I think, you know, there's an element of all of this where we get defensive about our own stuff and we can't sort of see what someone else is going through. But for me, that was a pretty big reminder and, you know, and you're doing it, you're doing it two times a day and it's, it's easier now because mm-hmm. you're used to it. And I think when you first started doing it, you had so much of that mucus and stuff that needs to get broken down. Right. And now it's better. And um, your voice is so much better in the last few days. And it was terrible. Yeah. And you're sort of regaining that ability to swallow the things you were. And, and last night is a great example. Like we went to a, a like a team barbecue and um, you had some drinks of my wine, which you haven't, had any wine in a very long time and they had short ribs and you had some like you know minuscule pieces but you ate enough to taste yeah enough to feel like you were part of it Mm -hmm. and and then something happened in that barbecue that i did want to talk about because um one of our friends sat down next to us and she said to you 
How are you, Chris? Mm -hmm. And I was honestly, and we haven't talked about this because then we got home and I was tired and we all, we were all tired and we went to bed and then we got up and went to school and work. But I was pretty shocked by how transparent you were. Yeah. And I thought, well, you must really have needed to needed somebody else besides me to sort of ask you that question. That's really true. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you were honest about like, I mean, we were in, we were at a barbecue full of the people that you work with and you were really honest about how the interactions at work were hard for you Mm -hmm. in the sense that people sort of, and obviously you work in professional sports. Like this is, these are a lot of guys and it's very, these are athletes. These are, it's, talking about feelings is not something that's comes easy for you either as a man. And so I think that sort of first initial, uh, when we said to people initially, like, don't treat us any different, don't act any different mm-hmm. is now, I think for them, it's like, Oh, that's what snowy wants. And also then I don't have to talk about hard things. <laughs> and I feel this often when someone says, how are you? Everyone says good. Mm-hmm. Like what? What is the, what is the intent of the question? Yeah, I'm supporting the answer. Yeah, like beyond my situation, like what are we all supposed to say when someone says, "How are you?" Mm-hmm. Because most of the time, the first asking isn't looking for a long conversation. No, and that's the challenge, really. Yeah. I feel this a lot as well. What should I say? Mm-hmm. Like, should I say good? If I'm not good. Should I make a joke and say, still here? You know, what's the right thing to say? Mm-hmm. And so that question, I, I, in that situation, I could tell she really wanted to know. Yeah. I think that the, the way that you ask that question, the eye contact, the intonation, the elongation of it uh, indicates the kind of answer you want. And clearly, she was trying to say, and say, how are you? She was saying, I care. I'm interested. How are you? Yeah. Yeah. And part of it is just like, there's not enough time in a lot of those situations. And that was a good, like there was enough time, but I have like my, my answer to that question is like, cause people, Oh, how's Chris? And I was like, well, he's hanging in there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which always makes me think about your dad. Cause your dad always said that hanging but in. But that answer also indicates that they shouldn't ask you a follow up. Right. And oftentimes I don't want them to mm-hmm. because I often don't also have. And for, sure. So for me, that's my way of like, cause I have a problem with being disingenuous. I can't be like, he's great. He's good. Like if I know you're not mm-hmm. same about myself. So it's my way of saying, Oh, he's hanging in there. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm being honest. We're not great. It's not perfect, but we're still, we're doing our best. Mm-hmm. And, and also they can ask more if they want, but it, mm-hmm. they, it's, it closes the loop. And sometimes I don't want to tell them more. Exactly. Sometimes I do. So it's that's the challenge. It's this imbalance of what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. You said to me not that long ago, "I need something for myself." Mm-hmm. You have work, and work has always really given you a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And then we still talk, does. Still does. But you have had this little period where with the stuff you were going through with your voice, which again, I feel like is better now. And you came home today, you said you had this really good day at work. So that's good. Um, 
but you weren't sort of drawing a lot. It was, it was sort of wearing you out more than it was emptying your cup more than filling it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, summer was over. That's always hard for you. And, and you don't do things for yourself. You know, I think you, you're trying really hard. Um, you mentioned already like a new therapist, uh, you know, physio massage therapy, you know, subscribing to your meditation app after letting it lapse more reading you can call it subscription or free trial then yes free trial. <laughs> um because something that you always did have that made you feel good and made you feel alive you don't have this year which is you're you're no longer co- coaching cone in hockey and i think that has that surprised you how what a void that has left i think so i've talked to other dads about it as well because this is the first year that a lot of us aren't coaching. It's the last six years, and three of those were ALS years. I was assisting coach with Cohen's team. That was two days on ice and two days behind the bench a week of validation that I could still do that. And I feel like I had things to offer those kids. And you're connected to that team. In a very direct way, you see the kids' expressions come off the ice. They're up, they're down, they're enthralled, they're crying. And you deal with those things. Mm-hmm. And to sit in the stands, uh, and this year sit in the stands with all new families uh, who don't know me and, more importantly, didn't know me prior to the changes I've had. You know, in my expression, my, my sound... Uh, that's been a challenge and a, a significant loss. Because that's over. Coaching is over. Mm-hmm. And I was trending that direction because of my speech. And honestly, Cohen's at such an age that he and his teammates, they do not want their dad's coaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're ready for, quote-unquote, real coaches. Mm-hmm. And they deserve real coaches. Mm-hmm. But that's been... That's probably the thing that was always scheduled and rewarding that's gone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, I'm, I'm so grateful that we're in this place of, of the long haul part of this, but I think of late, there's been a real realization for both of us that this is, this is, I know it sounds silly because we always knew it, but this is not, this is the way it is. And this is as good as it's going to get. And I think that that can be an overwhelming feeling. And when I worry about your mental health and sort of your ability to stay positive and bounce back, which, you know, I, I, you have every right to feel every way you feel. I worry about your ability to find joy and happiness in life when you have lost more. Um, and so that whole thing where you said you can't think that, down the road because that makes that's overwhelming right that that feeling i think i feel worried about that when we get there and you know there's no point what's the point in worrying about it but i think all the work that you have to do all this work now mm-hmm. so that you have tools to help you because the reality of it is is like yeah this this is the way we have to view life this is as good as our life is going to get mm-hmm. you know Someone made a comment on on Twitter or something recently, a picture of you and you had slip-ons on. And, you know, we've joked all the time. On, I've joked all the time about how you wouldn't wear slip-on shoes. And now you are wearing slip-on shoes. 
but now, sometimes, sometimes, but now you need help with your socks. Hmm. And so that's sort of a good example of it, right? Like we're not staying here. Mm-hmm. We would like to stay here in this spot, but we're aware that we're not, you know, you've had some progression into, um, your left shoulder. So mm. your good hand shoulder, and you've had some progression into that good hand, you know, with pinching and things mm-hmm. like that are a bit harder. So that down there is scary for me because I'm, I'm worried about your light going out. That's a legitimate concern. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I have to do the work now in case, not in case, but I need to be mentally strong enough and emotionally strong enough to offset physical loss. But it's a seesaw. If the physical side are all the way down, then the mental emotional side is all the way up. And that's my challenge and my focus. And we all should feel that way because it's it, how you feel is how you are. Mm-hmm. And I need to control what I can control. And that's, that's a focal area. Yeah. When you've been sort of down and lonely in these past months, my fear has been you... I don't want you at any point to look back on a period of your life when you had more function and more mobility and more independence and say, I missed out on part of that because I was so down about what I had lost. You know, I don't, life for us now is still really, it's pretty good. It's good life still. And I just don't ever want you to have to look back on. I don't want you to miss what you have now because it's shitty, but like, this is the best it's going to be for you. And I don't, I want you to eh, embrace it and grab it and just wring everything out of it that you can. And it's not fair for me to put that pressure on you. No, it's not because I'm going to do, Really darn oh, well. you do wonderfully at it. For sure you do. And I think, it's kind of like when you say, you should talk about your feelings. And then you do that you're not pleased because in some way they make you feel bad. When you say, you should do something. And, you know, I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. And I don't feel like there's any regret at the end of a given day. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because if we're talking about our feelings being okay and this not being linear and this not being simple and easy and all of those things, like what you're going to have periods where you're down and you're going to have periods where I think it's been hard for me because I've never seen it happen to you before. You've never seen this as he's happened before. Well, of course not. But I mean, I'm talking about specifically like you've, you've, you've always been the barometer, right? And I've always been able to say it's going to, you know, and I've tried hard to, to offer that in, since you've been diagnosed and, and give you that reassurance the way you've given it to me over the years. 
I don't think I thought this down as you think. I think I've gone through periods that are like physically yeah. challenging. Absolutely. And those physical challenges trigger fear, grief, and then for the other side of it. Yes. So these warnings were difficult. The back of my shoulder is not as strong as it was on the good side, and that affects a lot of things. Yeah. And I had to go through a process of grief there. Mm-hmm. And so that's not avoidable. No. That's just part of the deal with this. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think that I haven't, I think I'm watching you do this and understanding it better, but that you, I think when you lost your hand, you were just so like, you handled it with, you never grieved. You didn't feel like you had to grieve that. Like you, it, that was so seamless. I said more offsets then. Yeah. And, and so I think that, you know, it's probably just a longer process for you now or a more obvious process for you now or whatever. And, and you're right. I do have to, like, I can't say, Oh, tell me about your feelings. And then you're experiencing these feelings. And I think I'm just so, I just, you know, I'm, my job is to get, make sure everybody's okay. And I just want you to be okay. Um, and I want you to be happy. I want you to still be happy. I know. I'm trying. I know. I know. So here we go into another hockey season, another winter. There will be challenges. There will be aspirations. Like these things aren't going to go away. Which kind? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the kind that require antibiotics. <laughs> right. So on the field of Fenway Park, it's obviously a company. It's an aspiration. Yeah. In fact, morning I had like a reflux to show this. I was like, geez, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there'll be more challenges. And I think the thing that gives me, you know, where I am finding hope in the last couple of weeks is like, I see you doing things that can help. And I think that was my biggest fear before is that I just felt like you didn't have things to help. I think you can write that inaction does not begin to address these underlying emotions and, and challenges. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that doing anything does feel good. Yeah. And I think for me, the whole notion is this is going to get harder. So we have to make sure that we have all the resources that we can have as we go forward. So, so we will go forward. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being your first guest. Oh, my most important guest. <laughs> all my friends always say that they're, they like you, these episodes the best. So you're stuck. <laughs> You always say, Chris, podcast Sunday night. What if I don't want to? No. Okay, Monday afternoon. <laughs> you know what? I will say, though, and I said this to you over text today, I've had this feeling for a lot. For, okay, I got to get home from, and I got to get back into the podcast. I got to start in September because that's when things start and I have to do it. And, and we, I'd say, we have to do it this week. And then something would come up. And I'd say, we have to do it this week. And something would come up. And I said to you today in a text message, this is actually so much better because in the last week, I feel like we've settled down. 
not just in like our schedule because our schedule is crazy, crazy now, but like, I feel like we were struggling to connect with each other. And I feel now that there's been a shift there. We were in the chaos of new beginnings. Yeah. And if you're in that, you can't have any perspective on it. Yeah. And, and solving problems. And that can be hard because I'm going in one direction and you're going another. Like I'm trying, you're trying to solve the problem in one way and I'm trying to solve it in another. And it can be hard to feel like we're, even though we're united, we're not really, we're going in different directions. Yeah. Yeah. Just already in concrete. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying to get through the day and you're Mm -hmm. trying to do what you need to do to stay healthy. And then I'm over here not being able to probably give you the connection that you need because I'm, I'm trying to solve the problem on the ground, right? Like I'm talking to the doctors and I'm doing the research and doing that, which means that like that sort of compassionate understanding that you probably need for me, I have less, I'm having an empty cup. Yeah, the problem solving is incredible. I couldn't be as healthy as I am too without you. And yet that's not connection. Mm-hmm. Right. So at the end of the day, you feel like you've done 28 things on a 15 thing to do list, mm-hmm. and the kids have drawn down your energy mm-hmm. as well. And I'm looking for some sort of connection, and you're like, hold on a second, I did this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. That's unfair. Yep. And I'm not wrong, and you're not wrong. <laughs> It's just hard. You just don't say it to each other. <laughs> yeah. So you're wrong. Yeah. I'm right. <laughs> yeah. And then Usually you are. Uh, it's exciting when you're not. It's exciting when you're not. <laughs> Said every husband everywhere. <laughs> it's like a team that goes like eight and 74 during expansion year on that team. These victories feel so good. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, the reality of it is this is hard, and we're just doing our best. Well, your best has been pretty amazing. So is yours. Thank you. Thank you. One of the Sorry I'm Sad conversations I treasure most was in my first season with Melanie Masterson, a mom in my neighborhood who was dying of metastatic breast cancer, but had lived much longer than doctors first thought she would. I'll never forget when she told me that the longevity of her life felt like it had worn down some people around her. She said she sometimes felt people looked at her and thought, you're still here? You haven't died yet? Long-term illness is a grind and people have their own struggles to attend to. When Melanie said that to me, it broke my heart. But now I understand what she meant. Illness with no endpoint, with seemingly no resolution, is not comfortable for people. They don't want to see it because they don't want to believe there are things out there that can drag on so painfully, that don't get better. Illness is a downer. And in a story I often tell myself, no one likes a downer. Melanie died not even a year after our conversation, and I hope with every ounce of my heart that she knew deep in her bones that the people who love her are grateful for every single day they had together, even the messy ones, the impossible ones, and the sickest ones. Last month, our daughter turned eight. She was four years old when Chris was diagnosed with ALS, and we didn't think she would remember him. 
but on her birthday, they played arcade games together and he watched her open presents and he stood next to her in all the photos and he sang her happy birthday. And while Chris's illness is a grind and there are days when it does feel exhausting or when he feels invisible, for those people who love him most, he is still here. He's still showing up. He's in all the pictures. He's in all the memories. The space occupied by those who are not going to get better, who are still here but fading, however slowly, is undoubtedly a very lonesome place to exist. If you know someone who lives in this space, please remember what Chris said. He doesn't need sympathy. He doesn't want pity. He just wants to be seen. So do me a favor. Check on your people. Let them know in whatever simple way that you see their struggle. One more reminder that if you value this podcast and these conversations and want to support my work, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. For the monthly cost of one latte, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Sorry I'm Sad is created, produced, and engineered by me, Kelsey Snow, with theme music by Andrea Revel. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is now